Thank you for joining me today, Rick. I appreciate you making time because I suppose, as I was saying before, I, I need your help in a sense. You're a philosopher. You've published books on free will and meditation, many papers. You did your thesis on it. And there is a big popular movement at the moment of free will skepticism. And this guy, Robert Sapolsky, who has been doing interviews every 10 minutes, apparently, in every <laughs> major news uh outlet and kind of steamrolling people, I suppose, with a very incredibly simplistic argument that I, I tried to distill, which seems to be just that things happen before and that's what happens now. <laughs> I don't know. So I wondered maybe to start off with, what what's your take on Sapolsky's argument? What do you think of it? Well, I um, confess that I actually quoted him in my dissertation. I don't remember. I have to go back and look it up. But um, I remember thinking, this was, you know, when did I finish that? In 2005. So this is a while back. So I don't remember exactly. But um, I remember there was some arguments that he made that I, you know, used, I appealed to some of his um, research to justify belief in free will back then. So and this this turn of events with him now, I'm, I'm a little surprised. Yeah, it's difficult to distill his argument. Um, I forget how many hours I did the audio book version of um, whatever that book is called, Determined something or other, the science of living without free will. Uh, right off the bat, the, this, this um, way of def defining, you know, your, your title tells you something he's presupposing that science supports that we don't have free will. That's number one. And so he's just going to tell us how to live without it. Um, that seems a little premature to me. Um, you know, people who specialize in free will are still debating this matter. Um, he's a biologist. He's not a philosopher. It's okay, you know, some scientists are, can be quite gifted as philosophers naturally. But yeah, he throws in the kitchen sink about science and kind of there's an ellipsis there in his argument. I don't know what it is, but scientific determinism premise, therefore no free will. Um, and then uh, he also has like maybe a footnote about, well, even indeterminism. Um, so he's done a lot of the reading. He, he references a lot of the, you know, key players in the, in the, in the area, but he'll go on and on for hours about, you know, like neurons firing and all this kind of thing. And, and it's as if, because there is so much deterministic, mechanistic explanation that's so successful in the sciences, that seems to be his premise. Therefore, there's no free will. Um, it's a simplistic view. There's a lot missing in there. And whenever he gets close to filling in an ellipsis, it doesn't work. Like one of the things, if, if you try to say what's the premise, what's the strongest premise that leads to this conclusion for him? He's got some kind of idea that if you had a single neuron that wasn't determined, then you could have free will. I remember him making that argument at one point and like, what does that even mean? But, and then he also argues that, you know, indeterminism won't get you anywhere. Um, I, I, I can't make heads or tails out of his argument. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, another way of putting it maybe would be this. He simply presupposes a kind of um, reductionism and physicalism. Everything is physical. Anything that exists reduces to what's physical. Everything that's physical is deterministic. Footnote. Some things are indeterministic, but they can't get you anywhere. Uh, and this is a classical argument. Um, Paraboom and Caruso and others, you know, uh, even Ted Honderich, I think, years ago, um, made the argument that if there is genuine 
metaphysical indeterminacy at the you know quantum level, it's so infinitesimally small that it would cancel out before it ever arose to the level of a neuron. Um, and that to me is also kind of um, premature empirically. We, we don't have the empirical evidence for that. Number one, number two, chaos theory undermines that idea because, you know, the snowball rolling down the hill can cause a boulder, which causes an avalanche. And, you know, so like micro things can affect macro things, um, no matter how small they are initially, butterfly effect and all that. So that's a kind of bluff. Um, but he doesn't even go into the arguments well uh, about the, the fact that indeterminacy couldn't be sufficient for free will. You know, one of the things that's missing, one of the things that many people who make that argument tend to ignore, and I'm now like putting more words into his mouth because I'm talking about what he ignores. Yeah, it's I think missing. we'll have to give him a bit more, to be honest, than he, he gives out because it's a broader yeah. position, but he really doesn't, doesn't justify the philosophy at all, um, which is really weird. But I, I yeah, because it's kind of this Newtonian causality that it's a billiard ball cause and effect just there's some unexplained cause at the start maybe the big bang uh this has just caused a kind of ripple effect of dominoes falling over and we're just somehow in that but it doesn't really explain how we could become aware of that and how becoming aware of that wouldn't afford us certain ways of changing it i mean i don't know surely if we were just this wave of causal dominoes we wouldn't have self-consciousness we wouldn't have reflexive the ability to modify our behavior and um, and that all seems unexplained but i suppose that newtonian model which did split philosophy in terms of you know descartes and the enlightenment and empiricist versus rationalist like that was a big deal philosophically with the question of free will and you know materialism how we could have a soul or a spirit or um that kind of split philosophy in a way. So I wonder, do you do you see that? Is he just carrying on that legacy of like, oh yeah, this is true. This is how it happened. Here's the consequences of that thinking. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like like I said um, a little earlier, you know, maybe putting too much thought into his position, but on analysis, it seems to be very simple. Physicalism is true. Reduction Reductive physicalism is also true. Ergo, there's no free will. Everything is mechanical causation. Given the initial conditions and the laws of nature, this is the consequence argument uh, that Van Inwagen makes very clearly. Given the, he doesn't even quote Van Inwagen, but given the given the initial conditions, whether it's the Big Bang or something prior to that, if there is such sense to be made about the word prior in connection with the Big Bang, if the Big Bang is what actually brought into existence time and space uh you know whatever but given the initial conditions or at any time in the history of the universe given the conditions you know the particular location and trajectory of any, every particle in the universe and the laws the next state is necessarily uh going to happen and the state after that and so on so given the past and the laws the present state, which includes your free, freely chosen, you know, freely willed decision and so on. It was inevitable. It was unavoidable. There were never any alternatives. There's only one historical trajectory of the universe, like a series of dominoes. And so you couldn't have done otherwise. Um, and therefore, because the, and this is one of the, um, Almost everything that I just said is, as you know, disputed by philosophers. But if our our kind of pre-philosophical conception about what it means to be a free agent is that I did X, but I could have chosen not to do X. I could have done otherwise, right? If that's, let's say, one of the libertarian conceptions of free will, the freedomist views, if that's what you mean by free will, and determinism rules out all the alternatives, but the one that's necessitated by the past and the laws, then you couldn't have done otherwise. If being able to do otherwise means you have free will, you couldn't have done otherwise, then you don't have free will. But as you know, there are many different conceptions of, of free will. That's number one. Number two, when they have that footnote about indeterminism, oh, even if indeterminism was true, 
a random choice isn't going to give you free will because you can't control the outcome of a random choice, right? Well, what that what they ignore when they focus on the argument that way is that even if one particle in the universe changed because of randomness at a, compared to that consequence argument Unfolding model, wave, past yeah. the laws, one, one trajectory, well, no, things would change, right? So if there's indeterminism, then that nightmarish vision of being locked into one future falls apart. It collapses. So indeterminism defeats the consequence argument. And most philosophers don't really appreciate that fact. Uh, most philosophers who are free will skeptics, I should say, they focus mm -hmm. attention on the fact that, okay, if we're going to let randomness into the system, they it's almost like a straw man. We're only going to view randomness in the system as your choice was completely random. <laughs> and therefore okay, it's if not it was completely you random then it. it wasn't up to you okay sure mm -hmm. but randomness in the system defeats the consequence argument and then the question is well on the basis of what did you choose and there's so many different models of that and he doesn't really go into that at all he has a very simplistic conception i think he mostly has the conception of free will where it's you could have done otherwise nothing determined what you did and so, look, I've got tons of evidence about how all your neurons are determined from biology and science and whatnot, and just hours and hours of him rehearsing the science as if people are ignorant of the science. And once they hear the science, they'll go, oh, I guess I don't have free will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this kind of Laplacian idea that, like, if we had, if you could just figure out the any of the conditions of the universe at a time you could predict everything else it kind of gets rid of like uncertainty in a way it's a weird third person perspective on ourselves because i think consciousness is presented to us as the default we're aware and that we seem to be making difficult decisions and choosing and trading off between things so really their position is that that is an illusion and that the really real thing is this weird immortal third person you know wave that somehow we can know about but not change in a way it's like a cosmic <laughs> prison or something um that we can know we're prisoners within but not change and so i yeah. it's really unusual i think even psychologically like why he almost takes like this spiritual stance on it that's like yeah we just need to like accept it but I feel like if you can accept it, that's doing something. Like that's actually yeah. an action. There's a performative, <laughs> yeah. There's a performative contradiction in this position. Constantly. I mean, that's yeah, all they like, do. Well, what's the model? Dennett, Daniel Dennett in Elbow Room, 1984. Excellent book, compatibilist. He talks about I forget how what he calls it, but I'm calling it like a cosmic rewind thought experiment where if you could rewind the universe, if it's deterministic, back to the beginning and press the play button again, like on a DVD, just like with a DVD, every time you replay it, you're going to see the exact same things happening. So if determinism is true, we're stuck in a cosmic DVD. Um, and if you rewind it and replay it a million times, every single time, the choice that you thought was sort of random, sort of up to you will always come out exactly the same, just like a DVD. And that's that terrifying vision of the consequence argument like i'm I'm stuck right and then it makes a good analogy with um a wasp that he nicknames sphex has a longer latin name i don't know if you remember this experiment this thought experiment he says sphex digs a little burrow like an l-shaped burrow stings its prey like a cricket or something with paralyzing um poison that just uh, disaffects its um motor nervous system so it can't move but it's alive, so it stays fresh, and it'll pull it to the edge of the burrow. It'll go down and look at the angle in the burrow to make sure there's no other predators in there because it was away from the burrow. And then it'll come up and pull the, the um, prey down, put it in there, and either store it for food or insert its eggs into it or next to it. And, and its eggs, when they hatch, will eat that, that, freshly, that, that fresh food, right? It's really gross. But you, when you first hear about it, then it says, wow, it seems really brilliant. 
And then he says, but scientists, when Svex goes down, they'll move that prey over one inch or two inches. And so when Svex comes up, it'll see that it was moved. It'll go get it and pull it back. Now it had its back to the burrow. So it'll intelligently again go and check because while it had its back, maybe it was being set up by some other kind of predator, right? And you go, wow, that's really super smart. Um, but if you keep moving the bug a thousand times in a row, the prey, Svex will just pull it back, go check, pull it back, go check, pull it back. And now you go, oh, Svex is stuck in an algorithm. It has very simple stimulus response. It's programming. And, 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 and then it says, when you look at the cosmic rewind thought experiment, you realizing that you're like Svex, only you've got some more programming. You've got more stimulus response programming. And that's this terrifying vision, right? That we're robotic, we're mechanical, we have no control. It's going to be one way and that's it. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the vision, though. That is that's, yeah, that's really the no, frightening he, vision. He doesn't seem to differentiate between Svex, in this case, and human beings. Like we're the same. Well, then it as does. The, then it does. But Sapolsky then, doesn't. Then it does, but Sapolsky doesn't. Yeah. yeah. He, he seems yeah. that we're just these reflexive, like it's all reflex all the way down. There's no voluntary action, and um, that seems really strange when you think of the qualitative differences between a person and uh, wasp. Um, yeah. Like well, as in, the compatibilist is yeah. saying that. Well, look, we do have a lot more programming. We do have a lot more that evolution has given us. So even if we have a bunch of these algorithms built into our, you know, genes and whatnot, our culture and everything else, there's so much of it that we're functionally equivalent to flex rather than sex. We've got real, we've got real alternatives. And, and then it makes a big point of saying that people misidentify or misassociate or they conflate determinism with inevitabilism. And when we can anticipate an outcome that we don't want, we can bring it about that that outcome doesn't happen. We can foresee the outcome of our choices. We can foresee things coming and we can do things that will prevent that from happening, um, even if the world is determined. So Dennett is saying, even if determinism is true, we have enough going on that makes us functionally it's almost as if we're the same as the libertarian agent, um, even if determinism is true, because we've got all this other, all these other abilities. We can pause, we can reflect, we can anticipate, we can weigh our preferences, we can up value something and down value something. We can almost rewrite, rewrite a lot of our own algorithms, so to speak. So we've got all this. It's um, like you can imagine how could you build a robot that had autonomy? You'd have to give it almost all the abilities that we have. <laughs> That's mm. another way of thinking about it. Um, so we're biological robots, but we still have this reflective ability. We have options. We can pause. And this is something that um, in my work on meditation and agency, I make a big deal out of. So we are biologically and culturally conditioned right? We're genetically conditioned, we're environmentally conditioned, we're conditioned by all sorts of experiences to cultivate a kind of uh, a set of these algorithmic responses that we have, our conditioning. But when we practice things like meditation, we, we kind of step back and study and reflect on all the things that cause our behavior and we can decondition ourselves from various of them. <laughs> our attachments, our beliefs, our values, we have the ability to completely reprogram ourselves. Well, maybe not completely. We have limitations. Like we can't fly at will, but you know, but given whatever the limitations are that we have, we can still do a tremendous amount of um, rewriting of our own program, so to speak. Mm. And you know, one of the things that I'm jumping around a little bit because there's so much and, and this, this Sapolsky guy, he kind of drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're I looking wanna... more at the positive side as well. I, I like moving into you now. You and I, I are right now. Yeah. account of his, his take a better one, I think, than he presents. So I think moving into the sense of why that's 
not accurate uh, is is where we're going um at this point i think the meditation and the self conditioning is is really something that in your work is is so key and um really yeah i i suppose tell me a bit more about that and for people listening i'm sure that's welcome information yeah so what i often do to make this clear is to contrast it with Galen Strawson's impossibility argument, as he calls it. And Strawson says, well, well first, let me back up. Um, the the um, Dennett is a compatibilist, and Sapolsky and others are incompatibilists. So compatibilism or incompatibilism is traditionally, and for the longer time, historically, was about whether or not free will is compatible with determinism. But then with the quantum revolution, people, defenders of free will started thinking, oh, good, you know, death to the consequence argument if there's indeterminism. And then the free will skeptics came back and said, well, no, because if your choice is random, it's not up to you. The outcome is beyond your control. You can't say you're the author of it. So that's not going to help you. Okay, so then that's called, that's another kind of incompatibilism. Free will is incompatible with indeterminism. And then some philosophers like Dirk Paraboom and Greg Caruso combine those two, right? There's two kinds of incompatibilism. It's incompatible with determinism. It's incompatible with indeterminism. We call that hard incompatibilism, right? So, um, and the argument is very simple. If determinism is true, there are no alternatives. Alternatives are required for free will. Therefore, there's no free will. If indeterminism is true, it's totally random. You can't control the outcome of a random process. Therefore, there's no free will. Thus, either way, whether determinism or indeterminism is true, you have no free will. And that's the hard and compatibilist argument. I call that the optimist's dilemma because the optimist about free will is someone who believes in free will. This is the dilemma that, you know, the critic poses. I flip that argument and I, I say, well, you know what? There are entailments in both of them that are being ignored. Just like I said, oh, oh, focusing on just one neuron, not being determined, you're kind of um, cre you're, you're, you're framing the salience of what seems to matter in a misrepresentative way. You're ignoring important alternatives. So I flip that and I come up with a pessimist dilemma. Um, and it goes something like this. You know, I flip the entailment. So if determinism is true, then, well, see, if indeterminism means that it can't be up to you, then determinism means that it can be up to you, right? I have no control over the outcome if it's random. That means if it's not random, theoretically, it's possible that I could control it. If that doesn't make sense, then the original argument doesn't make sense. It has to be that this, there's a contrast of meaning. Like if there's something tall, there has to be something short, you know, this kind of thing. So, and I do the same thing with indeterminism. Um, if determinism means that there are no alternatives and therefore no free will, indeterminism means that there are alternatives and therefore free will is possible. And yep. therefore, whether determinism or indeterminism was true, either way, free will is possible. Not that it's true, but that it's possible because the first argument says that it's impossible either way. And I say it's possible either way. Now, Strawson, this is a background. Now, Strawson comes along. And says it doesn't matter whether the causes of your behavior are deterministic or indeterministic, not because determinism leads to no alternatives and indeterminism leads to no control, but because your choice is always a function of your mental state at the moment of choice or the moment just before your choice. What determined that your mental state was the way that it was? doesn't matter if it's deterministic or indeterministic, right? Your choice is always a function of the state of mind that you're in, the moment that you make that choice and the moment before it, which influenced it or conditioned it. And he says, you can't be ultimately responsible for how you were in a given moment unless you could be responsible for how you were all the way back to the very beginning of your existence. And unless you could create yourself from nothing. If you could create yourself ex nihilo, you would be a causa sui, 
a self-caused being like a prime mover unmoved or something like and unless you could do that you've been conditioned throughout your existence and the conditioning whether it's deterministic or indeterministic that's what's more responsible for the state of mind you are in when you make a decision right and ultimate ultimate and this is a lot of weight put on this word ultimate you you lack ultimate responsibility for yourself if you can't control how you became the way you are and therefore, you don't have ultimate responsibility for what you did. It's an argument is against moral responsibility. And the intuitions are strong about moral responsibility. You know, you think about a criminal and what are the conditions that led to his behavior and then judges, you know, compassion. We have to take that into account. And so there's this idea that unless, you know, unless you're 100 percent responsible for what you did, it's not entirely your fault that you chose what you did. Right. So that's the intuition. Okay, so he's kind of trying to bypass the version of the free will skepticism that rests on the inference from determinism or the inference from indeterminism and just do this more abstract generic thing about being conditioned and caused in any which way. All right. So and his conclusion is ultimate moral responsibility is is impossible. And then going back to Kant, who made this very clear, there's this very strong intuition that free will and moral responsibility are completely interdependent. So if you lack moral responsibility, you lack free will. Why? Because for you to be completely responsible, you have to have had total free will. That's the intuition. Some people challenge that intuition, but we'll just hold it for now. All right. So in the same way that I flipped the argument against um, the hard indeterminist, I flipped the argument against the impossibilist, which is Strawson. And I say, and that's when I appeal to meditation. Uh, I'll also appeal to Kane, Robert Kane, who's a libertarian. Yeah, I was going to mention, yeah, self-forming actions. And yeah, Kane makes the argument that, and this is a way of, def of, of resisting hard indeterminism. Hard indeterminism is the idea that indeterminism is incompatible with free will because you lack control over the random processes and everything. But what Keynes' argument is, and one of the challenges against libertarians, those are the ones who believe in the strong version of free will where I could have done otherwise, that view. I lost that particular train of thought, so I'm just going to go back to Keynes. Um, well, yeah, so you're talking you about Keynes and the hard indeterminist position. Um, that Kane is responding yeah, yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. Yeah. So for the longest time, libertarians, defenders of strong free will, were critiqued that they didn't have a coherent working model of what that would look like. How could that be? What do you, what do you, prime mover on, you like a little god, right? That, that's absurd. Yeah. That's incompatible with science, you know? So for the longest time, the, the biggest weakness of libertarianism was the, the absence of a working model and just like, what did they rely on? intuitions from religion and morals and from phenomenology. I feel like a free agent. I seem to be deliberating. Uh, religion requires it. The, the justice system and ethics require it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have a working model. What, how, what explains how those choices are actually free? So Cain uh, is one of the first to come up with a good, well, good enough, uh, at least initially prima facie, some plausibility to this model, although critics say it's empirically implausible. But the model goes something like this. A young child, at the first time that they face a torn decision, mm -hmm. right? So like, I want to do X, but I know that's bad, but I really want to do it or whatever, right? Or some kind of conflict like that. He says, in theory, it's possible that, well, first of all, both of those desires are the agents. Right. So even if there's some kind of coin flip going on in their psychology, whether it's heads or tails, heads and tails, both of them are the agent's own desires. So they are sourced properly. They're sourced in the agent. This is the source version of autonomy. It has to come out of me. Right. So they're both versions of me. The agent is struggling. Which me do I want to be? <laughs> Right. And the very first time that they make that choice, that's the 
actual first expression of their real agency. They're creating the kind of self that they are. And he calls it a self-forming action. And he says, empirically, it might be the case that the brain is in some kind of Borden's ass type situation. Um, for people listening, Borden's ass thought experiment says that like a donkey um, who was thirsty and hungry and was equally poised between water and hay, if it didn't have some kind of coin flipping function in its head, it would starve and, and die of thirst because it would be immobilized in between the two things, right? So when we're, when we're stuck and we have to pick a random choice, so there's a good place where randomness might help you, right? There's a, there's a spot where randomness is not a bad thing. It's, it's a feature, not a bug. If you have a randomness generating function in your psyche, good for you. You won't be Borden's ass, right? So Cain is, uh, taps into that idea too. He's, but So there's an element of randomness, perhaps, because it's not determined. But in the very act of picking one over the other, that's the expression of the agent's agency for the very first time. He calls it a self-forming act, SFA. So, and, and it's like the quant, what he says also about the empirical part is that it might very well be that the tension equalizes the quantum forces in the brain so that it, it might have been determined if one of those desires was stronger than the other. But because it's a torn decision, they're equalized. And so they kind of cancel out the deterministic force. It's not the deterministic force of either one of them that led to the outcome because they're equalized. So it's a kind of quantum, quantum indeterminacy in the brain and the agent is creating itself in the act of collapsing that wave function kind of thing between those two options, right? Self-forming action. Now I say, leave the empirical and the metaphysical aspects of that aside for the purpose of my argument. But you could take that or leave it, include it, leave it aside. I like to make reference to it for the following reason. So we certainly engage in some kind of self-forming actions throughout our lives. And whether or not only the first one matters or every single one of them matters, right? These are kind of empirical and metaphysical questions that are complex. But what I say is when you practice meditation, you are looking at your own conditioning, your attachment to your desires and your values, your, your beliefs, your goals, your self-images and all that stuff. And you're, you're able to step back, see the attachment and choose to detach. Okay, those choices are made within a context of beliefs and values and desires also, but they're more reflective. But what you're doing is you're disentangling and you're, you're engaging in what I call self-unforming actions. And every time you engage in a self-unforming action, you're creating a new kind of self. So they're both self-unforming and new self-forming. And we engage in this sort of thing intentionally when we have a serious meditation practice. But many of us engage in those kinds of decisions when we change and transform ourselves throughout our lives through any kind of activity, right? So, and it doesn't seem to matter whether the determinism or indeterminism is the case, <laughs> right? In the same way that Strawson says it doesn't matter, right? Because you, your conditioning is causing it. Well, it doesn't matter if your conditioning was deterministically or indeterministic, indeterministically generated. It doesn't matter equally if your unconditioning was deterministically or indeterministically generated. You're still deconditioning and unconditioning. So that's, that's the kind of argument that I make. And what I, because Hard, like hard determinism is the view that determinism and free will are incompatible. Soft determinism, like Dennett, is like, no, determinism is true, but it's still compatible with free will. Hard indeterminism is the view like um, Paraboom and Caruso and others that says if indeterminism is true because of randomness, you don't have free will. But soft indeterminism is libertarians like Cain who think even if indeterminism is true, you could have free will. So when you unite the two incompatibilisms, that's called hard incompatibilism, right? It's just the hard is the stronger, scientifically minded, you know, the hard sciences. That word does a lot of work um, psychologically. Uh, I want to be someone who's not afraid to face the truth, so um, I'll go hard, you know. 
I, I guess I'm a softy um, on some level because I unite soft determinism and soft indeterminism. And uh, I, I form soft compatibilism. That's just the name of my view. That free will or agency is compatible with determinism or indeterminism. It's compatible with conditioning, deconditioning. It's compatible even with manipulation, with all sorts of things, in theory. So the manipulation argument, also from Dirk Paraboom, is also called the four case argument. I think sometimes it's called the mind argument because it occurred in the journal Mind and got a lot of. There's something with there. That one? Uh, yeah, with the because that's that is tying into something which I'm thinking, which is the, this kind of model of a dialogical self. The libertarian free will seems to have this kind of monadic self that's just like a homunculus that's deciding <laughs> from above. That's super hard to explain and just doesn't really hold up. But if you have a model of a more dialogical self where we have these competing desires, I'm thinking almost of like Plato's tripartite model of the person, which is that you have like a human, you have this short term salience monster, and then you have this social lion and that they're all trading off with each other. They have different goals. They have different motivations. And it's through the balancing of these goals and motivations that we actually shape our actions and what we're doing it's that there's that inner competition of motivations which is really an outer one i suppose to have an optimal grip on a changing environment um creates the impetus for us to make these trade-offs i mean because the sapolsky thing as well it's like if we could just reflexively do the right thing every time that would be great like if we were just you know perfectly like meeting all of our needs and everybody else's needs and it was the best society ever and we didn't have to do anything that would be ideal really for us like but it doesn't seem to work like that uh, within us or with other people um so i wonder what you think about the dialogical self and the kind of motivational and emotional competition that goes on inside of us being important for agency well that's that seems to be a kind of um empirical fact right that we are complex beings, that we have all these different dimensions of ourselves. There's no doubt about it. Um, yeah, Plato was brilliant in that regard. Um, this whole issue about what the self is, that's, that's another complicated topic. Mm. So we're, we're dialogical beings, I would say, for sure. And whatever the self is, that's a complex, different question. Like, what's the difference between a person and a self? Self is some kind yep. of aspect of the person which is connected with its own identity and its agency and all that. But, but uh, regardless of the metaphysics, I, I think you're onto something and it seems it, it, it rings true for me. And in my model, all of those aspects of one's being, one's self, one's agency, one's emotions, desires, beliefs, self-images, models of self and other, all of those things are significantly interconnected causally and shaped by and, and shaping each other and all of that. And yet the, um, the model for deconditioning that I associate with uh, on, a, on like say, let's say the most effective level is this ability to step outside of and look at all of that mm. and tinker with it and see how it works and what parts of you are, um, in harmony, out of harmony, competing with each other, self-defeating, uh, you know, or what processes are, um, up, there are opponent processes, there's things that are, you know, feedback loops that become negative, that become positive, or what does John Fervecki call them? Um, reciprocal opening versus reciprocal narrowing. And so, yeah, like we're multiply complex beings. Um, and to me, and I think this is true in Buddhism, even though ironically, a, a largely popular narrative in Buddhism is that there is no self. Well, I think maybe if you say there's no homunculus monad self, right? Uh, if that's what the Buddhists mean, then that makes a lot more sense than saying that the collection of these processes and this dynamic autopoetic system lacks yep. any kind of integrity or agency, that's a mistake. 
And I, I don't, I think that if Buddhism is saying that, then, well, on some level, that system is not owned by a monad. Okay. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the system itself doesn't have uh, all these kind of uh, abilities that we associate with agency. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, or, and it, well, because autopoiesis as well, it seems to be so central because like a lot of the research I'm doing on attention involves attention as selection for action. Like, so it's like the selectivity of attention is involved in the trade-offs between, and I've heard Verveke say before that, that he identifies the self with wise attention with, and what we're talking about, meditation, mindfulness, this capacity to pay attention to how you're paying attention and to use that yeah. to change your patterns of attention, affording you essentially agency. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think the attention thing, Buddhism is a great example, obviously, because mindfulness is so important to it. And um, Stoicism too. Stoicism as well, yeah, pro-Soch, yeah. pro-Chiron, this kind of, again, yeah, attending to your attention and how you're framing situations as, as the kind of foundation of, of building agency, which... And I, I have no problem with that, like that agency is something that ha can be developed. Like we might not have default as much agency as we could. Like, right, right. you know, we can live very low agency lives, but then by engaging with it, we can make it better. And Sapolsky, again, doesn't seem to, you know, recognize any of that. But um, it, does that land with you in terms of like we can enhance our agency? Absolutely. It, you know, yeah, look, this is this is the. I suppose the kernel of my argument in my work on Buddhism and free will or meditation and free will is that when you practice meditation, one of the, the two basic skills that you're practicing are one pointedness and open monitoring. And one pointedness is focusing on any subset within the total field of your awareness, like your breath, a sound, whatever, doesn't matter. You bring your mind to a target. This is a primary object that you choose to focus on. Your mind wanders. You, you notice that it's wandered and you return it to the target. And every time that that happens, this is a rep, a meditation rep, mm. like a weightlifting rep. Okay. You're building the ability to do selective focus, like what you said, the selective attentional focus. It's an exercise. It's very simple. And the other one, um, and th there are different ways within like meditative traditions to describe these two things. So I'll make a nod in the direction of that. I'll say a little bit more about it and then kind of set it aside because I don't think it anything I'm saying hinges on those disputes about how to understand these two things. The other one, open monitoring, is when you are just um, attending to the entire field of awareness and noticing whatever's popping in and out of your attention, your salience landscape or whatever. And you're noticing also maybe things that are in the background behind your salience landscape and that are emerging into it and whatnot. So you're kind of taking a global thing. And what I like to say about the two of them is that in a, in a way, they're two aspects or modes of the same attentional skill looked at from a, a larger perspective. So if you just use a metaphor of like um, a dartboard with the circles, right? The bullseye is the little dot in the center. One pointedness is focusing there and your mind wanders out to another circle and you notice it and you bring it back in. And those circles represent all the different aspects of the self that we were talking about the lion and whatnot, whatever, right? Um, the larger one, the outer circle, on some level, open monitoring is looking at the whole dartboard, all the levels, and wherever anything is happening, anything that's appearing or disappearing. Now, when you're trying to do the open monitoring, you want to keep this kind of global attentiveness and then what happens is some local phenomenon pulls your attention into it and you get lost in a train of thought or a pain in your knee or rumination or whatever it is, sound, you hear a conversation, whatever. and now you've gotten drawn into a narrow focal range. When you realize that, you come back to the broad focal range. That's the same skill. 
only in reverse. <laughs> right? So, and then, and then there's another, some people call open monitoring mindfulness. Some people will say, oh, mindfulness of breath, which is really one pointedness if you're just focusing on the breath. But then another, another dimension of it, another aspect of it that I'd like to bring in from the other ways in which other traditions talk about it is if you're focusing on that little circle in the middle, the bullseye, right? That's one pointedness. Um, if you're focusing narrowly on the bullseye, let's just say, right? So you want to mm -hmm. keep that range that you want to keep that circle as your focal range. So that's a range control muscle that you're cultivating. But within that range, how bright is the light of attention? How luminous, how lucid, how present is your mind about what it is that you're looking at? So you might want to think of like a flashlight that you could adjust the lens so that the circle of light on the wall is bigger or smaller. But then how bright is the light? <laughs> Right. If you have another mm. knob that you could make it really bright. Right. So mindfulness is a kind of total brightness that you cultivate the more that you practice this. Right. So both of those just different ways. of. So, but all of those skills, they're all attentional skills, attentional, selective or non-selective attentional focus. Right. Depending on how you want to phrase that, the semantics make it seem like there are two different things, but mm -hmm. on some level, they're not narrow or broad, narrow or broad, it's still focal range, right? Focal range control, right? And then attentiveness within the focal range and steadiness and so on. So those are the like the key muscles of agency, I think. <laughs> those are yeah. central muscles of agency. And the more you practice them, the more all the other aspects of your agency can improve because even your perceptual focus, you know, what you're focusing on engaging in the, in the world significantly engages you in feedback loop, feedback loops with everything and triggers your emotions, your desires and all that. The more awareness that you could have about every one of these aspects, you can, you can extend those abilities into every aspect of the multiply, um, faceted being that you are you know the animal the etc you know all the different dimensions that's the way that's what i think and what i say in in my mm -hmm. writing on buddhism and free will is that the more you practice this over time your agency clearly grows big time serious meditators like the Buddha, let me quote the Buddha. I forget where the passage is from, but I, I can find it for you later and you can put it in the show notes. Um, the Buddha claimed that he was so good at this that he could think any thought he wants to think or not think any thought he wants not to think. He can have any resolve he wants to have or not have any resolve he doesn't want to have. And I would extend that to any emotion, desire, perception, you name it, to whatever the degree of possibility of volitional or voluntary control over. And yogis cultivate parts of volitional control over somatic processes that ordinary people can't, like their heart rate, their brain waves, their galvanic skin response, the body temperature, you name it. There's so much more in the system that's amenable to this kind of agent, agential control through practice over time than the average person, like you said. And from the Buddhist point of view, the average person is very low agency, mostly determined by the conditions they find themselves in. So for all intents and purposes, it's as if they are hard determined, but they always have the possibility of freedom because they have these capacities that just need to be cultivated. And first thing that the Buddhists say is hearing the Dharma by learning that you have these abilities, then you notice them. Um, and then you can start to cultivate them. So most of us are walking around as if we're hard determined or somnambulists, right? We're just kind of dreaming our way through conditions in life. And that's why Buddha means awakened. He, he, he figured this out. He realized that. And so although your agency can become almost titanic if you're a serious, hardcore, meditative yogi, you can cultivate all these almost titanic forms of agency. At the same time, the conception of yourself as that monadic homunculus goes down. 
your model mm. of agency becomes much more flexible and fluid, dynamic, processual, all that sort of thing. So ironically, as your agency increases, your sense of yourself as a separate agent seems to go down because you recognize the interconnectedness of all things and how malleable and flexible everything is. And you don't mm. think of yourself as a distinct separate self. Um, so it's a kind of weird inverse relationship. Your agency improves, but your sense of yourself as an agent kind of <laughs> diminishes in some way, mm. you know? Yeah, that's so, I mean, there's so many threads there. There was what, what you're saying about the two types of attention really maps onto the, this thing with having the task network and the default mode network. That's one's for goal-directed attention, the other for mind-wandering, yeah. and that they're yeah. opponent processing with each other all the time and trading off. And you're focusing yeah. for a long time and then bam, suddenly you're mind-wandering and then you're trying to refocus again. And Ian McGilchrist actually maps those on to the left and right hemisphere yeah. of the brain. But that that was what drove the evolutionary or the evolution of the two hemispheres. He says he describes it as the problem that a bird has when it's foraging for berries, but also having to simultaneously look out for predators. So in one sense, it has to be, it's a bad case of patting your head and rubbing your tummy because you're trying to focus very much on this narrow pursuit, but also at the same time, there's loads of other factors that you need to be aware of. And it's, it's like yeah. we've developed these traditions in order to optimize for that attention, for the way of being able to develop attentional flexibility. And like you were saying about the reps, and there's also something there in the imaginary attention, because this counterfactual processing of attending to hypothesize future states, imaginary states, that we can then entrain motor responses to make actually happen is also attentional in a way. It's like, it's <laughs> another layer of imagination or attending to imagination that becomes motor functions. So I, I really think this is yeah. the place where it's all happening. Yeah, that's all very interesting. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the imaginal and counterfactuals because in my, in my dissertation, I have a whole chapter where I talk about as primates, we simulation, we, we simulate monkey see, monkey do. Uh, there's gaze following. So even human infants and other primate infants, if you make eye contact with them and then you look to the side, they will look to the side. And this is obviously has evolutionary value because if one of our members of our species detected something over there, it could be food or it could be a predator. Right. So having that as a built in thing, those those organisms that have that live longer than ones that don't. Right. So but those are like at the root of what is it called? Shared attention and shared intention. Right. And so and those involve simulating other minds or a folk theory of mind, um, you know, theory of mind, but, you know, simulating other minds. So simulational skills are part of our primate heritage. and counterfactual reasoning is just a more advanced version of that taking your taking your beliefs and desires offline and bringing online imaginal beliefs and desires of others including future versions of yourself and seeing what the system will generate if you input beliefs and desires into it that you don't actually have this is a way of you know simulating the future and whatnot and i i argued in the in the book that a good part of deliberative agency is this counterfactual imagining. If I do X, this might happen. This will be the consequences. And, you know, being able to anticipate a broad array of possible um, paths of action and weight them based on likely outcomes, not only externally, but what kind of self I become, what kind of reputation I'll develop, what kind of habits I'm cultivating, all of those things, all the different paths. When we do this counterfactual, we're just deliberating, it comes quite naturally to us, but we're engaging in all these simulational, imaginal processes. And I forget the first name because there's a few philosophers named Bach, B-O-K. There's Cicela Bach, and I forget which Bach it was, but it's in my dissertation. One of them says, look, <clears throat> it's not epiphenomenal. The ones that we entertain, and then we, we deliberate and we pick the one that all things considered is the one that we want, and then we act on that. That's what enacts 
even if determinism is true, that's what brings it about that that's the path that I go down. And when I'm engaged in this rational process, you know, I have genuine rational agency. This is something that what's his name? The biologist Sapolsky seems to be confused about. Um, and I, one of the criticisms of him is that like, everything he's saying on his own account is just things like enzymes in his liver manifesting through speech. Like, what does it mean to think that it makes sense to entertain propositions and say, this one makes sense? And that, is that some kind of liver enzyme thing happening in the brain that has nothing to do with like plausibility, rationality, inference? You know, like what, what is the book supposed to be doing if it's true? It's kind of self-refuting. Well, it's also, yeah, because when you're reading the book, you're simulating it in your mind in a way. Like, <laughs> it really is, like, we're using that ability to understand the words that he's written, which kind of undermines it. But that counterfactual thing, because I think that really maps on to the ADHD literature, which is really interesting, because ADHD obviously is a deficiency of agency in a sense that you can't do that focused attention. You know, you're getting caught up in whatever is going on. And Guy Russell Barkley, who's one of the main, basically, people on ADHD, is, argues that it's it's an inability to inhibit, um, just to inhibit behavior, which we learn, like, internal thought as inhibiting external speech. So when we learn to inhibit motor routines, it, we can simulate it counterfactually. It happens in our mind. You don't have to literally do it when it pops into your head. And this affords us that ability to simulate certain pathways, certain abstract goals, run through them and not actually have to do them ourselves so we don't die. So it's like that inhibiting of behavior yeah. creates the simulation in the mind that we can then leverage to choose appropriate behaviors. Yeah. One of the things that I focused on in my dissertation is this causality. I didn't call it inhibition. I called it the ability to take these processes or sub-processes offline or put them online. So, you know, when you fall asleep, your brain waves slow down and something in the physiology triggers the shutting down of the motor uh, system so that when you're dreaming that you're running, your legs aren't kicking in your bed, right? So <clears throat> that kind of ability is related to what we're talking about with ADHD. It's this ability to, to um, toggle online, offline, action sequence networks and stuff like that. Yeah. And just like almost everything else I was talking about, those are some of the, any attention that you pay to how your systems are working will afford you some agency over it. <laughs> yeah, and attentional deficit is, totally related to, I mean, it's even in the name, deficiency, right? So it's a weakness or a lower level of agency over these attentional skills. And I think, I don't know empirically that I know you're doing research on it, so you could tell me, but I think meditative practices would at least theoretically be good medicine for people with ADHD. I've had people come to me over the years with ADHD and I've prescribed and led certain meditative practices for them. It seems to be helping them, but I haven't done any, <clears throat> any real scientific research on, on that topic. I, well, I don't know, but I assume that it would, to be honest, if you could get, I suppose, if they can engage in it in the first place. But interestingly, yeah. Barclay prescribes writing. So he gets them to write down. So you externalize all of your goals, basically, by writing them down to keep yourself accountable, to coordinate your behavior across time. Because he time is the other key thing here that they, they seem to think that we're stuck in this cause and effect kind of loop of time in Sapolsky like that it's just this this wave so the ability that's lacking in ADHD is to organize yourself across time because to consider future obligations to plan for them to be able to yeah. actually implement prudential. them when they have to yeah prudential yeah prudential reasoning is prioritizing what's what's 
what's more important to do now and what's worth postponing to later, right? There's a, a, a weakness in that category, right? It's like everything simultaneously grabbing attention. Yeah, and that's. I think that's what agency. A huge part of agency is long, longitudinal agency. Like it, it's that stuff that you know. That's why we celebrate somebody that comes from nothing and r- does something really amazing, and you know, achieves this absurd goal. And we go, "Wow, that's unbelievable!" Like you were so against the odds here, and you managed to somehow get right. to this place. Um, yeah, and time and, is part of the odds the there. Odds yeah. there. Yeah, how quickly exactly. something yeah. can be done. Yeah. Mm. Well. I think we've gone over time here, Rick, but I feel uh, much more, I feel okay now. Maybe I can, I can go back to the Sapolsky interviews and I won't get too upset (laughs) because he's just been, (laughs) he's just flat out wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I hope to argue with him in person one day or on zoom. I'll send a few emails. Let's make it happen. I would, I would pay good money to see that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) <laughs> what's his name kurt chai mongol theories of everything he's he's had him on and uh, he invited me to come on with greg caruso and debate free will um and i said to him well i'll be happy to do that greg and i are friends um in fact we both got our dissertations around the same time we both had the same advisor at the cuny grad center i was writing for free will he was writing against it and we had a free will circle that we used to meet every week and read chapters on free will and debate them with other professors would come and other students. It was a lot of fun. But I told Kurt, I'd like to also debate Sapolsky, if you could set that up. And he said, uh, I'm working on it. Oh, well, I'm I'm praying that happens, Rick, because that would be, yeah, I would, that would set things in order. Um, but thank you very much for coming on. And where can people find you if they're interested in more of your work? Where's the best place for them to look? Yeah, my, my name, rickrepetti.com. That's my website. Yeah. Let's see. Let me let me say a couple of more things. So I, I recently finished the first part of a philosophy of meditation series that I co-hosted with John Fravaki. We had seven episodes. There's only one more, I think, that's about to be published with uh, Mark Miller. But after that, I'm going to continue the series on my own. Occasionally, John will come if there's a guest that he wants to participate with. And uh, Mark Miller and John and I decided at the in our last um, episode on that series, Mark wants to do a series with me also on uh, his research. Um, and he invited John, and John said he'd love to be a part of it. So that's another series coming out. Um, also at appa.edu, which is the American Philosophical Practitioners Association, appa.edu, this stuff of mine. I'm teaching a course there that's going to be starting in a few weeks on, well, we have two two new things going on there. Well, three new things going on there. One is an academy, which is just for ordinary folks, for philosophy for everyday life. That's new. And I'll be teaching a course uh, in that on Indian philosophy for wisdom in everyday life, starting sometime in March. There's also an APA Institute, which is for professionals, anybody who's got a, like a professional degree. So those are kind of um, a higher level kind of content in those courses. Some of the courses are cross-listed. Um, right now, Pierre Grimes, one of the founders of Philosophical Midwifery, is doing a course. The first session just happened already at the APA Institute and the Academy. Um, but also another new thing is that we're doing an APA book club where once a month I'll be interviewing anybody in the philosophical practice space who has a book. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Friday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every week. for Since April, I've been running a weekly meditation followed by a Q&A. Th- those are accessible only to people who are patron supporters of John Verveke's Patreon, Verveke Foundation thing at a, at a low level of support. But there's also um, Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. Eastern, these half-hour drop-ins called SEOP, Starter Ecology of Practices. John is always, John Verveke is always advocating that we need an ecology of practices. Um, 
So Monday through Thursday, there's different practices. Every Monday, it's um, authentic relating. Every Tuesday, it's journaling. Every Wednesday, it's some kind of mindfulness thing. And every Thursday, it's some kind of embodiment practice. And I will, um, uh, there's a handful of us that are alternating doing them and taking turns. So, and those are open to the general public. You don't have to be a patron supporter. Uh, If you want to, if you don't have uh, an ecology of practices, it's a good way to kind of jumpstart one um, easy access to uh, cultivating some kind of rounded set of practices. And that the website for that is awaken to meaning one word.com. Yeah. So that th- those are nice. And yeah, I, it doesn't say on the calendar who's teaching what, so you never know which one of us you're going to get, but that's another place where I, uh, you might meet me. Fantastic. We'll include that one as well, Rick. Um, AwakenToMeaning.com. Definitely check it out. Thanks again for your time, Rick. Thank you. Thank you. It was great.